Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now, get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. I'm Joel Sedekes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain share and defend the Christian message. Now, before we get started, a quick bit of housekeeping. I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be at the Fight Laugh Feast Conference October 1st through the 3rd in Nashville, Tennessee. I will uh, be, be there at the booth for the Think Institute so you can come connect with me. And also we're going to be doing a little special event there at the conference as well. Stay tuned for more information about that. I also wanted to let you know that I'm going to be teaching a breakout session at the Cruciform Conference in Indianapolis later on in the month of October. I think it's October 23rd. Don't quote me on that though, but I'll be doing a breakout session on apologetics. The theme for that conference is holiness and I'm really looking forward to that. So I wanted to encourage you to check out those conferences and then also stay tuned until the end of this episode to find out how you can connect with us here at the Think Institute and also how you can connect with our guest. Now, speaking of our guest and the topic at hand, according to a recent survey, one third of those who self-identify as evangelicals believe, get this, that Jesus is not God. I'm going to say that again. One third of self-proclaimed evangelicals believe that Jesus is not God. So what does this say about the state of quote-unquote evangelicalism and the unbiblical ideas that have crept their way into it. Well, in this Tuesday Twofer episode, my guest is Elisa Childers, and she's going to explain the decentralized movement known as progressive Christianity, and she's going to discuss how its teachings have influenced many churches, maybe even yours, how to spot it, what some of its false teachings are, and how you can fight back against it. So without any further ado, welcome, Alisa Childers, to the Think Podcast. How are you? Hi, Joel. Thanks so much for having me on today. Oh, man. Thank you so much for coming on. It's really, um, as I told you backstage, so to speak, I've really been looking forward to this episode, and my wife has really been looking forward to it um, because she's appreciated your work. I think she found out about what you do originally from the Mama Bear Apologetics podcast, because you've worked with them, correct? Yes, I am. A, I'm sort of a, a honorary Mama Bear over at Mama Bear Apologetics. Yeah. Yes. And uh, for me, I think probably the, the very first time I was exposed to any of your work was, of course, with the Christian band Zoe Girl going back. Uh, way back. <laughs> yeah, going way back. And um You've you've really had a very interesting life and a very interesting career that's gotten you to this point. Could you give us a little bit of your backstory, Elisa? How did you get into apologetics? How did you become uh, a, a a believer, even? And you know what what were some of the big landmarks that led you to where you are currently? 
Yeah, it's kind of an unlikely story, isn't it? A contemporary Christian music artist turns into an apologist. So you don't see that every day. No. And so um, going back, I was raised in a Christian home. I had wonderful Christian parents who modeled a very genuine faith for me, Bible-believing, loving Christian people. Uh, you know, certainly wasn't perfect. But I think uh, what I look back on in my childhood was getting to see my parents live out their faith every day, just in a very real way. We would read the Bible as a family. I would regularly walk in on you know, my dad reading his Bible or my mom reading her Bible. Um, they modeled repentance uh, to us and in front of us and with us. And uh, also did a lot of uh, humanity, what people might call humanitarian work, did a lot of work with homeless. And uh, in fact, when I was about eight, eight, nine years old, my mom had us out working the soup lines at the Fred Jordan mission. And uh, I just thought all that was normal. I thought that's what Christians did and, and that's what they were like. And in fact, I don't, if I think back in my childhood, I don't actually remember a time when I wasn't aware of Jesus, when I, when I was wasn't at least in my own heart and mind in relationship with him. I remember my mom coming into, I think it was the living room when I was about five and asked me if I wanted to give my life to Jesus. And I remember being kind of confused by the question because I had already done that. I, I was already in regular relationship with Jesus, very aware of my need for a savior and all of that. So um, yeah, just man, I love the Bible as far back as I even learned to read and write. I loved reading the Bible, uh, read through the whole Bible, I think, except for maybe just some of the more dense bits of some of the Old Testament law. I think I read through the whole thing by the time I was 12. Uh, I recognized in the Bible that this was the Word of God. This, this was the book that I wanted to live my life by, and this was truth. This was God's Word. And um, although I probably couldn't have articulated why I believed that. I I didn't have logical answers for that. I didn't have intellectual answers for that. And I never really went through any kind of a time of doubt uh, growing up. Uh, I, I look back and I can't, I can't think of any kind of significant questioning of my faith that I went through where I was maybe saying things like, man, did Jesus really raise from the dead? Is the Bible really the word of God? I just didn't, those weren't questions that were even on my radar until I was much older. Now, so, so going through the time in the Christian music industry and in Zoe Girl, as you mentioned, um, just it was such a great experience getting to sing. Uh, you know, I think back at some of our songs and theologically, I'm like, man, you know, I would definitely change some of those lyrics now with the study that I've done since then. But I mean, our hearts are in the right place. We wanted to give young girls encouragement in their faith, encouragement to stand up for, for truth and for God and God's word. And so um, when Zoe Girl was coming to a close, uh, we were all married and starting to have kids. And so um, I was married with a, a new baby and I was invited to be a part of a, of a study group at a local church here uh, in Tennessee. And I was really excited because like I said, I hadn't really done a lot of intellectual work and this, with this, that's what this class was going to be. And so I was really excited about it, but it was actually in the context of this class that the pastor revealed he was agnostic and started to bring about all of these challenges to all of these precious beliefs that I'd held since I was a child. Okay. Elisa, yeah. I, I, I am so sorry. Cause I know cause you're on a roll, but can you just repeat what you just said again about your pastor? Because yes. I think a lot of people just heard that. And if they haven't heard your story before, they're going, yes. what? <laughs> 
Yeah, I know. It sounds weird, doesn't it? It did to me too. <laughs> yeah, it was it was in I think it was the first class where he had kind of gotten everybody together and said, "Hey, it was a very small group by the way. So there's maybe 10 or 12 of us." And he he basically said, "This is a class where we're going to go deeper and we're going to ask hard questions and we're going to in you know explore the intellectual side of our faith." And he revealed that he was agnostic, which meant he wasn't sure what he really believed. And he said that he called himself a, a hopeful agnostic. So he was hopeful hmm. that Christianity was true, but he really wasn't sure. And which was very confusing to me, of course, when I heard it, because here is this guy giving these really authoritative sermons from scripture on Sundays, just digging into the word of God. And we were loving it. And then there's, it's almost like this blind side in class where he he admits this. And, um, but you know, at the time, this was probably 2009-ish, 2010. And I just thought, oh, don't be so judgmental. You know, I had this inner monologue going on, like, don't, don't judge him. Maybe he's just being really honest and he just right. wants to circle back around and make sure what he believes is true. So I'm, I just, I, I kind of said, I'm not going to judge that. But as all of these claims were being brought up in class, and, and these are like the same claims atheists make, questioning the historicity of the, the Bible, questioning whether it's been transmitted accurately, questioning how important it is that we believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection and, uh, you know, creation and things like this. And all of this was just it was overloading my senses. And so in class, I would try to argue with him. But there came a point about four months in when my husband and I decided to go ahead and leave the church. And it was then that I really got into this dark night of the soul where all of the doubts that he had planted in class began to take root and grow. And so it was just this really dark time. Uh, I think I went through a bit of deconstruction, which we're seeing that word a lot, where all the beliefs yeah. that you've always just sort of assumed were true are being picked apart. and. Of course, I didn't know that word at the time, and I didn't want that to happen to me, but it was just sort of happening. And I didn't know that there were answers. I didn't know that this whole rich intellectual tradition of Christianity for 2,000 years even existed. So that was a whole new world for me. Wow. So you enter into this dark night of the soul, and you're wrestling with these questions. You're not yet aware um, and I know since this time, of course, you've you've done your homework, but at this time, you hadn't yet. You're confronted with this tsunami of doubt, of uncertainty. Your pastor, who you're hearing him giving these solid or at least confident sermons on Sunday, has revealed that he's not so confident. He's not so certain. He's not so solid. And did that did that make you question your upbringing or what was the connection between that dark night of the soul that you entered as and and your upbringing in a solidly christian home did you start to go back and question what your parents had taught you or was that foundation still in place that i would say that foundation never crumbled completely. So I had all these doubts. Um, one, there were a few things throughout the time I was in the class that really stood out to me. Now, again, I had never had a class in critical thinking, so I didn't know how to logically process all this stuff. All I knew is that he was saying a lot of things that sounded like facts, that sounded logical, that 
would seem to topple Christianity, essentially, at least how I understood it. And so I, I think I was in a bit of cognitive dissonance because my heart knew that it was true, that Christianity was true. But my head was in a way almost persuaded that it wasn't. And so some things that stood out to me as I was in this class were, number one, there weren't, to my knowledge, any others who who would have described their upbringing the way I did. I heard a lot of people saying things like, well, I grew up in a really hyper-legalistic environment where mm. you know, we were told we were going to go to hell if we wore shorts or you know, something <laughs> like that. Um, right. And they, you know, so they either grew up in a lot of legalism or there was a lot of rustling through the, the issues of unanswered prayer. And that just, for me, wasn't that wasn't a stumbling block for me. I knew I could trust God that if he said no to my prayers, that I could trust him, even if I didn't understand it. And so that I didn't relate with that question. Um, there were there were a lot of people expressing that they they had never been exposed to other ways of thinking, other world religions. Uh, they were told that their particular stream of Christianity was the only one that was right and everybody else needs to get saved. And and again, you know, I grew up with a dad who had come out of the hippie movement. He had been through Eastern religion, Buddhism, uh, LSD, you name it, to find Jesus. So um, he was always reading books that Book of Mormon. Um, I think we had a Quran at the house. And mm. it was he had those things laying around because he wanted to know what those people believed. But I mean, in that sense, and doing, of course, a lot of street ministry, you meet a lot of different people. I was always exposed to other worldviews and other ways of thinking that people had. But that was a big one where people would say, well, I just never knew that, you know, if they grew up in some kind of maybe a charismatic stream that they didn't know the Baptists were saved. And if they grew up Baptist, they didn't think the charismatics were saved. Then they meet each other in, in Bible college and they're like, well, wait, they, they didn't have everything right. And right. there's a lot of that kind of stuff going going on. And um, so, yeah, there, that was one thing. The other thing was, is the thing that kept coming to my mind was, okay, this guy has certain facts or whatever, but I know that somewhere there is somebody who has all those same facts, but they've come to the opposite conclusion about those facts that he has. And I want to hear from that person before mm. I, you know, decide anything. And so there were certain things that would pop up. And then the other thing that I did notice in class, see, I didn't know the logical arguments. I hadn't really ever studied like systematic theology or church history, but I did know the Bible quite well, I think, for for compared to, to a lot of people because I'd read it so much through my whole life. And so I would regularly see him either take the Bible out of context or actually misquote it. And so when mm. I when I would observe him doing that, it made me question what he said about other things. And I thought, well, if he's going to misquote Jesus, then maybe he's misquoting John Calvin or maybe he's misquoting this historical fact or this area of of, you know, scholarship. And so that made me question him. Um and so I kind of that that's where I had all this, but I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to turn for answers because at the time I didn't know any Christians who could answer these claims intellectually. And so I just remember the darkest the darkest time I was sitting in my rocking chair, just crying out to God to send me a lifeboat, to, to save me, to help me, send me somebody who can answer these things. And so uh, I was in my car and I was fiddling with the radio and I heard this voice and it was this man on a college campus answering skeptical questions from students. And he was answering so many of the questions that had come up in class, but he was giving the opposite answer that the pastor was. Okay. And, and so that that was like a game changer for me. 
And you know, I have to ask, who was it? So, okay, so I'm listening to this this broadcast and I'm thinking it's about an hour long too. And, and so I'm like thinking, please say his name, please say his name. And so at the end of the broadcast, they said, you know, that was Ravi Zacharias. And I had to be Ravi. Yeah, that had to be Ravi. <laughs> so I was like, there's someone who could answer. So I, I Googled him when I got home and I discovered he had an app. So that was the beginning of uh, my, I guess you could call it my reconstruction. I started to listen to Ravi every day. And then every day on his app, he would advertise either some conference or maybe another app or another podcast. And so I began to find other apologetics ministries. I discovered uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary where I started auditing classes. And I'm actually a four credit student this semester for the first time there, which is pretty exciting. Wow. They helped me so much with my my faith reconstruction. And so, yeah, God really used apologetics to rebuild my faith and essentially launch me into this ministry that I have now. Oh man, that's incredible. And you've been doing this for three years, correct? Uh, well, I started my blog in 2016. Okay. So, um, yeah, and so closer to five years, but the podcast I started the next year, and then we just launched the YouTube channel just a few months ago. So it's sort of been <laughs> progressing as we go along. Oh, very cool. The, the good kind of progressive. Yes, the yes. good kind of progress. <laughs> yes, yes. So, now, um, progressive Christianity is an area that you focus on. Is is that um, was that an intentional choice, Elisa, or was it something that you sort of fell into? Or as you looked around at the different fields of study and and areas where you could apply your um, your interest and your studies in apologetics, you know, was this something that you intentionally chose? And if so, you know, why was that? Well, not at first. So um, the reason I ended up focusing so intently on progressive Christianity uh, is there's a bit of a story there. So the church that I was at where with the agnostic pastor, after my husband and I left, a few years later, they went on to identify themselves as a progressive Christian church, a progressive Christian community. And they essentially, they took down the Nicene and Apostles' creeds from their website, and they they put out this new belief statement that emphasized, uh, you know, per, the personal conscience and hmm. much more of a relativistic approach. And then I started to see that phrase progressive Christianity pop up everywhere. I would I would see my friends sharing blog posts. But at the time, you know, I was just sort of no, I think by the time they, they identified themselves as that, I had already come quite a ways along with my own reconstruction. But in the beginning, like I mentioned before, so many of the claims they were making were very similar to the claims atheists were making. So just general apologetics was helping to answer my questions. Hmm. So when I started my blog, it was just a plain old, you know, apologetics blog. I was writing very just safe little apologetics articles like, what is faith? Is faith blind? How did we get the Bible? You know, just very basic yeah. apologetics articles. Um, but then as I began to look for resources that could help me to answer some of the progressive progressive Christian blogs that essentially were dealing with some of the same claims, but just through this different lens of progressive Christianity, I couldn't find hardly anything. I found a few articles of maybe somebody who reviewed a Brian McLaren book or something like that, but I could find nothing that mm. was addressing the movement as a whole. In fact, what I found was quite discouraging. I found a lot of evangelical leaders thinking that the whole emergent church and that whole thing 
just sort of went away. And I'm sitting here going, no, it hasn't gone away. All my friends are swept up in this thing. And so uh, after I started the blog, uh, a few months into it, I was encouraged by another apologist to, to write something real specific to my own situation. You know, don't just write the plain, regular apologetics articles, really focus in. And so I took I took the challenge and I went home and I wrote a post called Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity. And it it exploded. I had never seen numbers like this on any blog post I had ever written. And I think the reason that it was so popular is because there were just a lot of other people like me that were seeing a lot of these ideas in their churches, but they didn't they, they, they had red flags, but they didn't have any articles or resources or books to help them to answer and to address and kind of challenge what they were seeing happening in their churches. And so that was a signal to me, like, you know, I was hoping somebody else would do it. But at that point, I was right. like, well, I need to focus in on this because people need resources that that directly address the claims they're coming across in their churches and online and and everywhere and books and everything. And mm. um, but th but they need resources. They need answers. And um, and so now I think I'm seeing progressive Christianity infiltrating virtually all of the major publish publishing houses, uh, wow. platforms. It's everywhere. And and I think that you know as we go on and talk about it more, even your your viewers will, they'll recognize even some of these ideas, even if they didn't know what it was called. Okay, so that's actually a great segue. I, um, I want to get into what do our listeners need to understand about progressive Christianity. And then I'd also like to differentiate between progressive Christianity and some of the other terms that are out there. You already mentioned the emergent church. I definitely want to talk about that. But I, I was able to um, pull up your blog post. Is this That's, the blog post here? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, so five signs your church might be headed, heading toward progressive Christianity. And this is the post. If you're watching this live on Facebook or YouTube, um, you can see there's, there's these five points. There's a lowered view of the Bible. Feelings are emphasized over facts. Um, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation, and I won't I won't spoil all five of them there because we're probably going to get into yeah. many of these. But um, but this is the infamous post. This is the one that blew up, and one. and sort of launched you into this world of dealing with this. So why don't we just start with kind of a, a, a foundation, a baseline on progressive Christianity? Alisa, can you tell us what does the average Christian need to understand about progressive Christianity. Um, and then we can get into why is it a threat? What do we do about it? Yeah. So the basic way, um, I've gone through several different iterations of how I do my sort of elevator pitch of what progressive Christianity is. And I think where I've sure. landed these days is the best way to describe it as far as what your viewers will recognize in their churches and how they'll spot it is this. Progressive Christians are essentially, a it's a movement that is springing up from the evangelical church. So for the most part, I would say 98% of progressive Christians are coming out of the evangelical church. And they're questioning uh, the historic view that Christians have of the Bible. Is the, is the Bible really God's word? Is it really authoritative for our lives? And largely speaking in the progressive world, you're not gonna find a lot of progressive thought leaders that would say, yes, the Bible is without error. It's authoritative for my life. And it's inspired by God in the same sense that we've always meant 
inspiration. Um, they're, they're questioning core doctrines. It's not like they're just looking at secondary, what we might call secondary issues, as far as like, how do we baptize people? Um, should, you know, have the gifts of the spirit continued, things like that. They're questioning core doctrines of, of salvation. So largely in the pro progressive church, they're, they're not going to be on board with original sin or, or the fact that you might have a sin nature. They think that that is pagan theology that's been, that's been infiltrated into the church. You, are, you don't need to view yourself as a sinner. Your sin did not separate you from God. Any separation you feel from God is self-imposed. It's your own shame. So often in the progressive church, you'll hear, it's not our sin that separates us from God. It's our shame. Well, of course, that's going to inform their view of the cross. If we're not sinners, do we really need a savior? Why did Jesus die? In the progressive church, the cross, the, the historic view of the idea that Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, that's viewed as cosmic child abuse. That, that turns the father into a, a, some kind of a pagan deity who needs child sacrifice to appease his bloodlust, right? So that's their view of the cross. Well, of course, if you, if you don't believe you're really a sinner, uh, Jesus didn't really die on the cross in any meaningful sense to make a sacrifice for your sins or to cleanse you from your sins. Well, what is left of the gospel? So largely in the progressive church, the gospel becomes a social justice gospel, a workspace gospel. It's more about what you do, not so much about what you believe. So largely speaking, progressive Christians are not united around a set of beliefs or, or creeds. You know, the, historically Christians from the very earliest Christians to today have been creedal. There are things that we know we need to agree on. Uh, and these aren't just boxes we check, by the way. These aren't just making intellectual assent to some sort of proposition. These are life and death beliefs that Christians have given their lives for over the years. And so um, I think that's a, they're just questioning a lot of the, the core doctrines that have defined Christianity and made it unique in the world for 2000 years. Wow. So you mentioned the emergent church. Now, I, I, I might be part of the problem here, Elisa, because you, what you said was that a lot of the assumption today is that the emergent church has gone the way of the dodo. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's disappeared. And so the emergent church for those listening is sort of that movement that came up uh, in the nineties, early two thousands with uh, teachers like Brian McLaren and even Rob Bell sort of caught the coattails of that mm -hmm. um, about uh, five, 10 years ago. And it, it, it did a lot of what Elisa just talked about, uh, really put a strong emphasis on questions. I'm just asking questions, but these questions were asked in such a way as to undermine the historical understandings of and by the way, I, I noticed that you said historical understanding, whereas I heard in a previous interview, you used the word traditional Christianity. Is that is that a conscious shift that you've made from saying traditional to historical? Yes. In the very beginning, I was using the word traditional. Um, I wasn't fully satisfied with it, though, because traditional can also... I mean, there's a lot of things that have traditions, and the traditions aren't necessarily what defines something. Hmm. And so I did, so there's no perfect word to put there. Um, there really shouldn't be any word there because Christianity is just Christianity. Right, right. 
but to help other people in understanding, I do now use the, the term historic Christianity. And so what I mean by that, and then I'll get into the emergent church just a little bit. But when I say historic Christianity, what I don't mean is that you just go back in history and find somebody you like that agrees with you and call that historic Christianity. You know, find some medieval scholar mystic that you like and call that Christi historic Christianity. What I mean by historic Christianity is, and this is part of what I did on my journey of, re of when God was rebuilding my faith, is I went all the way back to the beginning. See, many Christians are not aware that embedded within our New Testament is are, are dozens of creeds that actually predate the New Testament books within which they are recorded. And so arguably the earliest creed is one that Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians 15. Of course, 1 Corinthians was written in the 50s, but this creed goes back to anywhere from three to seven years after Jesus' death and resurrection. This encapsulates what the earliest Christians believed. And in fact, Paul, when he records the creed, he says, I'm passing down to you what was given to me, what's what's of first importance. So Paul's saying, this is the most important thing. This is what, you know, you have to believe at least this. And in that creed are, are things like the, res the physical resurrection of Jesus, the fact that Jesus died for our sins, not just as, you know, just some kind of angry mob sacrificing him for speaking truth to power, but there was a purpose for his death. It was for our sins. And then it mentions in accordance with the scriptures two times in that creed. So very biblical-based uh, beliefs, uh, believing in the atonement, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. These were core beliefs of the earliest Christians. We go back to that, and then we trace that through church history. And, you know, of course, we're going to find the church going off the rails from time to time, but there's always been correctives that have come in to sort of uphold that historic uh, that historic faith. And so, uh, and I didn't use the word biblical Christianity because a lot of times progressives use that phrase. They think they're the ones who have the biblical faith. So I'm combining the earliest creeds, the definition of a Christianity that's given to us by Jesus and the apostles, tracing that through. Uh, of course, the Bible is our final authority on, on all things, but um, just kind of combining those two elements to, to get this, because Honestly, Christianity means something. It, it is defined in a certain way, and there are things that make it unique. You can't just change that and still call it right. Christianity. So I think that's what we were seeing with the emergent church, which they were sort of piggybacking on the German scholarship that was coming in in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Guys like uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who were questioning the Bible, questioning uh the resurrection of Jesus, is Jesus really God? And a lot of that scholarship made its way into the church. And then what we saw historically happen was that the church sort of broke off and then the mainline Protestant denominations uh, that sort of embraced those higher critical uh, theological assumptions, we saw, we're seeing them now in decline. So essentially the mainlines and the progressive movement theologically are very similar. They just express themselves in different ways. So whereas that theology sort of burned its way through the main lines and we're seeing decline there. It's been, it was reinvigorated through the emergent church in the late 90s. Now what happened was, you mentioned Rob Bell. Of course, Rob Bell comes out with his book, Love Wins. And people may remember the famous tweet heard round the world from John Piper when he said, farewell, Rob Bell. Yes, and, yes. You know, and so a lot of the evangelical kind of gatekeeper types did successfully push 
the emergent church out of, uh, you know, the evangelical space. They, they succeeded in doing that. But because we have this thing called the internet, you know, guys like Rob Bell didn't just go, okay, John Piper, I'm sorry, I'll go away now. But they, they reconvened online. They found themselves in internet chat rooms and on social media sites, mobilizing lots and lots of people who had a lot of these same assumptions, a lot of these same questions. And so what's interesting is in 2012, Brian McLaren, who was sort of one of the fathers of the emergent movement and still is considered to be a father of the progressive movement by many modern progressives. But he wrote in a blog post in 2012 that the, the, the emergent church did successfully get pushed underground. But he says, we didn't go anywhere. There's, there's even more of us today who are still asking the same questions. We're still looking for a new way to express our faith, but we just don't use the word emergent anymore. And he even mentioned the term progressive and he threw out a couple of others, but the, the term progressive Christianity is the term that sort of caught on. And just as a side note, that's not a pejorative. That's not some sort of derogatory term that I and others came up with. This is what they call themselves. And so I try to define the movement as they define it. But yeah, so according to Brian McLaren, and I think this is true, uh, they didn't go away. They just caught, they changed the name of it and they remobilized. They became very organized, even uh, in what they believe that I discovered over a couple of years of researching, there's they're very united on uh, core principles and beliefs. And but yet they're now they're springing back up through the evangelical church and they're picking off uh, people who grew up in the evangelical church that might be disgruntled. They had a bad experience. Maybe they went through some legitimate abuse. Maybe they're really feeling the cultural pressure to cave on issues of morality and biblical sexuality. And so they've got this whole movement of people that have sprung out of the evangelical church saying, it's okay, you don't have to believe that stuff anymore. You can still call yourself a Christian and we'll accept you, we won't judge you. And so you can see why that would be really attractive. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And you mentioned cultural pressure, but how about um, individual personal yes. pressure? Uh, there, sin has a lot of appeal. If it didn't, we would never sin. And so if there's a theological system out there that can let me keep some of the vestiges of Christianity and, the, and, and I can still, I can sin as much as I want. I mean, that's going to sound appealing up to a certain point. Well, and yeah, and I don't even have to call it sin. I can actually say right. this is something that God created in me. He celebrates this about me. Right. Not only can I can I go into this behavior that my heart wants to indulge in, but I can actually believe that God is celebrating this about me. And so, right. that, yeah, that's I can imagine how tempting that would be. So you mentioned uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher earlier, and the the movement of Protestant liberalism, mm -hmm. which going back over a hundred years, 150 years arose out of Germany. And that's really the movement that I know you've mentioned elsewhere. You've mentioned J. Gresham Machen, who in his book, Protest, uh, uh, Christianity and liberalism, thank you. Christianity and liberalism. You know, he really tackled that whole movement. Yeah. Um, before we talk about, why this new this new iteration of progressive Christianity is such a threat? I want to just, if we could, sit in that uh, on that topic of Schleiermacher for a second, because Schleiermacher, maybe his best known work is on religion, speeches to its cultured despisers, and Schleiermacher and those like him, they really wanted 
to save Christianity yeah. from, from the black eye that it had seemed to receive from these cultured intellectuals who were looking at the doctrines of Christianity and saying, really? A virgin gave birth? Come on, you can't really believe that. It's, it's 1855 or whatever year it was. You know, this is post-enlightenment. We don't believe in silly things like that. Um, and so Schleiermacher, for whatever else we can say about him, he was trying to do something that you could call noble or seeker sensitive or seeker friendly to use some, some modern words. Now I'm using noble in the loosest possible sense of the word, because we want people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But we also recognize that the gospel is foolishness to those that disbelieve. So we can look at somebody like Schleiermacher and we can say, Hey, Schleiermacher, like, thanks for trying, but you're barking up the wrong tree here. Yeah. Is let me let me ask you this, and maybe you can give us your informed opinion. Is this is that what's motivating progressive Christianity? Is it a desire to lower the bar for belief? Is it a desire to um, just make Christianity more intellectually appealing to those who are a little more sophisticated, a little more scientific, or at least who are perceived to be that way? I definitely think that that element is there, but there's also this underlying thing with Schleiermacher that he was he was experiencing some really profound doubts of his own that his teachers weren't able to answer. In fact, you know, he he famously wrote his father, who was a an army chaplain. He wrote him a letter, and he didn't tell his father it was him who was experiencing the doubt. But he was basically like, you know, what do we what do we do with all this? And you know, his father kind of blew him off. He kind of tells him, you know, he gives him the kind of standard line. I can't remember exactly what the letter said, but it was it was just like you know, oh yeah, I've read all that stuff. There's nothing there. It, you know, it's, it's, it's not that compelling. Don't worry about it. Well, Schleiermacher hadn't told his dad, look, it's me. I'm the one who has all these doubts. And um, the heartbreaking thing about Schleiermacher's story is, you know, he ends up writing his, he waits six months. He doesn't even respond to his dad and he waits six months. And he just sort of makes this declaration. He's, and I've got the quote here. He says, I cannot believe that he who called himself the son of man was the true eternal God. I cannot believe that his death was a vicarious atonement. See, he was wrestling through some of these issues, the morality of it. And so I think that there's this two-sided coin, what you mentioned, um, where you're right. A lot of this scholarship was coming from, you know, the whole uh the, the rise of ev evolution and Darwinianism and how is the church going to deal with this? And there's all these sort of intellectual scientific questions. But then underneath, I think there was this sort of burning desire in, in a lot of Christians. And I see this in the progressive movement as well, where they're saying, I, I can't reconcile some of these things with my faith. And I don't know how to do that. We have more information at our fingertips than anybody's ever had in the history of the world. Alisa, I'm yeah. sorry to cut you off. I, I think I just lost connection here. Okay. I, I don't know how much the folks watching um, missed, but if you could, if you could back up about thirty seconds um, and and just reconnect those dots again yeah, yeah. for us for with Schleiermacher maybe, and maybe I said something heretical and God was like, "We're going to shut this down." Uh, <laughs> I, I, I tend to think it was probably it's it's not coming from the Lord. It's probably coming from right. uh, the other side. Yeah. Well, I was just making the point that with guys like Schleiermacher, at least Schleiermacher himself, was wrestling through some really serious personal doubt that his his right. theology professors couldn't answer his doubts. Right. He couldn't reconcile um, what what he was 
supposed to believe with what he was observing in the world. And I do think there's a connection with progressive Christians who are, are thinking the same way. And then I, I was talking about the fact that, especially now, that we have the internet. There is just, there's never been more information, whether it's true or false information, just at everyone's fingertips at all times. And so you can literally Google any theological question and spend the rest of your life reading rebuttal after rebuttal after rebuttal after rebuttal. I mean, you could never end. And so I think it's created this culture of doubt where people are really afraid to land on a position because there's going to be somebody else that has you know, some kind of rebuttal to that, and then there'll be a rebuttal to that. And and so I think in a lot of people's minds, it's become like, you know, not to be cliche, but there's that cliche phrase, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. I think right. have shifted from, and essentially what that is, is a shift from objective truth, saying I want to land on objective truth, to more of a relativism, because that's so predominant in our culture. It's like, well, whatever's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And I think that's a comfortable place for a lot of people to be in because it's easier. It's it's much easier to say, well, Joel, I mean, you may think that about something and that's that's wonderful. That's true for you. But I, you know, I, I have this other direction I'm going in and that's true for me. And we can just we can just settle that that we both have truth, but we just find it in opposite things or something. And I think that that's very compelling to a lot of people, especially they're growing up in this internet age yeah. where it just seems impossible to land on anything true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and of course, as soon as someone starts talking in those relativistic terms, well, this is true for me, that's true for you. They're actually making an absolute truth claim because they're saying that truth can be person right. relative. And so, uh, you know, uh, someone, sort of well-versed in those kinds of conversations can point that out pretty quickly, but yeah. it can be a very destabilizing thing to have those, those questions. It really can, because especially with the way that relativism is expressed in our culture and particularly in the progressive church, it's not that they're saying objective truth doesn't exist. They're just saying there's no right. way anybody can know it. And so, but again, you're still, you still find yourself with the problem of that, even that kind of relativism ends up bottoming out in absolute truth because essentially speaking, they're still making an absolute truth claim. Yeah. They're saying what is true is that objective truth can't be known. Well, yeah. then you're making an objective truth claim. So how do you know that that's even true? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that and that's why I just never could settle into relativism because for me, it's just, they're, they're just playing word games with truth and they're still making objective truth claims, especially when it comes to more hot but button topics like sexuality and things like that. I mean, they're not going to agree that what's true for you is true for you in that area. And so um, I just wanted to know what was actually true. And I think that what's better, rather than just giving up and saying, well, what's true for you is true for you. I think a better uh, sort of goal would be to say, look, we know objective truth is there. Maybe none of us have like just a stake in the ground on what it is in every area, but we should be trying to adjust our minds to conform to what is true rather, rather than trying to conform reality to what we think it might be or what feels comfortable for us. And I think that it's a much better goal to say, I'd rather adjust my mind and my thinking to reality rather than the other way around, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
Man, that's really the struggle of our time. It's really, it's really the the two dominant ways of looking at the world is Mm -hmm. on the one hand, there's there's an external objective reality that, like you said, I have to conform my thinking and my living to the world in which I live. If there's a truck coming down the, the 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 highway. I need to know if that truck is really coming and then I need to adjust my behavior accordingly. I, I'm not going to cross the road, for example. Right. Whereas the other way of thinking says, well, you know, what, what, is there a truck really coming and can I trust my senses? And what is a road anyway? And a right. road is, you know, I, for me, this is a sidewalk and how dare that truck even be there? And, and, and what, who's to say what a truck is? And so, which is yeah. such a great point because nobody's a relativist in that situation, are they? <laughs> right, right. That's Everybody's right. Everybody's going to jump out of the way of the truck. And I think that that is just the key right there because yeah. people have tried to relegate objective truth claims uh, in regard to religion to uh, some other category. But it's still the same thing. There's a truck coming or there's not. God exists or he doesn't. There's there's something he requires of you or there's not. There's heaven and hell or there's not. I mean, these these are not just things we can invent in our own mind. The, right. In reality, they exist or they don't. And I just couldn't escape that. Right, right, right. No, that I think I think that that, that kind of clarity is so important. I thank you for laying it out so clearly, black and white like that. And um just just to again, just to bring what we were just talking about to kind of bottleneck it again and bring it back to progressive Christianity. What, what do you think is motivating? If you had to put a pin in something, what's motivating this desire to, for people to flock to, is it, is it the, is it the doubt? Is it the, the plural, uh, the pluralism in which we live? So more of, more of a broader cultural reality. Is it the, the, the personal, desire to to sin and to redefine sin or is there is is it a confluence of things and you can't say that it's any one particular thing elisa yeah it's definitely a lot of things all converging at a certain point in history okay. i think all the things you mentioned and um i have a book coming out october 6th called another gospel and in the book uh, it chronicles my journey uh through my doubt and through the claims that were made with my experience with progressive Christianity and sort of walking the reader through my story, but also through uh, some of the questions I asked and how did I settle on those questions and where did I get my information? And so in one of the chapters, I talk about why progressive Christianity is so appealing, particularly to evangelicals. And I've I've Mm. said for uh, at least a couple years, I've never met someone who converted to to progressive Christianity from another worldview. Uh, I've only known people who have converted to progressive Christianity from the evangelical church. And I've kind of challenged people like, if, if I'm wrong, let me know. I, I got one email. <laughs> I have gotten one email from a guy who said, I did. And, and so, you know, put that in your stats. So I'll, I'll acknowledge that I have now met one person <laughs> who converted to progressive Christianity from, I think he said, atheism. Um, so, okay, fair enough. There's one. But essentially speaking, this is a movement that is, it's a reaction against something. Hmm. Uh, in fact, G.K. Chesterton has such a uh, a great quote uh, about this. Of course, he lived in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, I'm trying to find the, the exact quote because it's so good. Um, I may not have it in here, but the, the 
The essential idea is that it's often found that when you find somebody progressing toward a madhouse, they've probably just made an escape from another madhouse. Uh, that's and good. So, yeah. So what I think is going on in a lot of cases is people are being drawn to progressive Christianity because their experience of Christianity has not been either um, good, it has been maybe abusive, it's maybe been hip hypocritical or legalistic. Um, there's a lot of that. And then again, like you mentioned, there's just a lot of cultural pressure and even personal pressure to want to change our minds on God's definition of sin and what's holiness and what's sinfulness uh, to capitulate to culture because it'd be so much easier, frankly, for us to just do that and be accepted by everybody and actually be celebrated uh, because we have this change of heart and the world would celebrate. It, it does every right. time. Every time a Christian changes their mind on sexuality, the world celebrates them. They make headlines right. and so there's a lot to be gained from that um, uh, as far as even just getting the pressure off. And I think, too, I mean, it's not just to be accepted. I think a lot of people have friends who who might be gay or might be struggling in certain areas. And they're they're just they don't want to have to deal with the biblical um, mandates on those things. And so um, there's a lot of that. And then then you just get the whole kind of culture soup of the relativism. And you mentioned pluralism. Progressive Christianity is very pluralistic, uh, very non-exclusive. You're not going to find a lot of progressive Christians that will tell someone from another religion that they're wrong. In fact, Richard Rohr, who is a spiritual mentor to many uh, progressive Christian leaders, is what he calls a Christian perennialist. He believes that all of the religions are coming from the same source. So he's a Christian perennialist, but he's not going to tell a Buddhist that they're not on the right path because, in fact, he'll glean all the wisdom he can from Buddhists and from Hindus and from people of other faiths because it, we're all coming from the same source. Like we might express it differently in the world, but it's largely the same thing. And so this is what's influencing this movement uh, to be what they would call non judgmental, but it actually, you know, it's funny, they, they'll consider themselves to be very non-judgmental, very tolerant. But if you if you get very far deep into it, you realize that it's it's just as intolerant as anyone else. I mean, they're not going to accept you if you don't uh, affirm certain things about sexuality, if you don't affirm uh, certain things, if you do affirm, for example, like penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus, uh, they they believe that's abusive. So there's not um, there's not a lot of tolerance for people like us, at least. Uh, but but that movement is definitely marked with this idea of we're not judgmental. We're we're much more tolerant than the evangelicalism we left. So we've talked about what progressive Christianity is, and what's motivating it. Where does it come from, and you know, what, what streams have coalesced into this movement? Can we just briefly just articulate why is this such a threat? What What's the danger? If people want to articulate their Christianity a little bit differently, maybe they want to gray the boundaries between the black and the white, the, the truth in the error a little bit. Alisa, what's the big deal? It's still, it's Christianity, isn't it? It's right there in the, the name of it. It's progressive Christianity, right? So why is this such a threat? And why are you so committed to weeding this out if it's just really ultimately another form of Christianity? 
Well, I think that if it was just another form of Christianity, if it was a stream of Christians who might be questioning some of the methods we've been using for all this time, or maybe uh, looking for a better way to express Christianity to a postmodern world, I wouldn't be worried about it. Even if they were, you know, going a little gray on some of the black and white issues, I don't think that'd even be as much of, of a threat to use the word um, that you used in the question. The reason I think it's a threat is because it is deconstructing what Christianity actually is. And just like J. Gresham Machen argued in his book, Christianity and Liber Liberalism in 1921, progressive Christianity, like Protestant liberalism, is an entirely different religion. So when you follow the tenets of progressive Christianity, if you follow their view of the Bible, if you follow their view of the cross, if you follow their view of the gospel, if you follow their definition of Jesus, you're gonna get a different Jesus with a different gospel with uh, an ineffective cross and a Bible that is an, a wonderful ancient spiritual travel journal, but it's not authoritative for your life. And at that point, you do not have the same religion as Christianity. It's a different religion with a different God and a different Jesus. And ultimately, it's a Jesus that can't save you. And that is why I'm so passionate about sort of exposing this movement. And, and that's what I argue in my book, Another Gospel is that, and that's why the book is called that, Another Gospel with a question mark, because I, I argue in the book that progressive Christianity is not just a group of Christians that are changing their mind on some social issues or, or maybe seeking to be more loving in the, in the world. This is another gospel, and it's it's ultimately has to do with salvation issues. And if you follow the wisdom of progressive Christianity, if you follow the tenets of progressive Christianity, it will not lead you to saving faith in Christ. And that's why it's so much of a threat. Well articulated. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you for that. So, um, I want to I want to just um, give a quick shout out, a quick plug here for your book. And uh, I'm going to pull it up on the screen. Uh, let's see, here we go. So here we've got, is that it? That's it. Yay. Okay. So in a culture, in a culture of endless questions, you need solid answers. So there, if you're watching this live, you can get a sneak preview of Elisa Childers' new book that's going to be coming out. It's not out yet. It's coming out next month, but um, I, for one, am uh, am very much looking forward to it. And um, listen, I don't know if you have some sort of policy where if you go on somebody's podcast, you automatically send them a free copy of your book. I don't know if you have that policy, Elisa. <laughs> but I'm just saying I'd be open to that. I, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't turn that down. I wouldn't turn that down. We will get you a book, Joel, for sure. Yes, score. In fact, yes. right now, email me your address so that I don't forget and we'll make sure you get one. I will do that. Uh, yeah, I'd like to say also, um, if you pre-order from this landing page that Joel's showing you right now, if you pre-order the book anytime between now or if you've already pre-ordered it, uh, pre-order between now and October 6th at midnight, you're going to be eligible for a couple of bonuses that I'm actually going to be announcing tomorrow on my Ooh. YouTube page. So <laughs> you can find my YouTube page and I'll be live streaming tomorrow. And I'll tell you about the bonuses or pretty sweet bonuses too, that you're going to get if you pre-order. So definitely check that out. Excellent. 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 Well, well, good. So if you're enjoying this conversation that we're having um the book is no doubt going to be just as edifying if not more so and uh just as enjoyable so definitely encourage everyone to go check that out and so alisa as as we begin to sort of round out our time here 
Can you give us some solid counsel on how do we fight back against, and I'm using, I'm using martial language here. I'm using militant language, quite honestly, because Paul uses the same kind of language in Galatians. When he tells the Galatians, he calls them, you know, you foolish Galatians, because they're being suckered in by another, um, another quote unquote gospel. And, you know, um, quick sidebar for me, uh, when I started the Think Institute, and, and I've been into apologetics and, uh, and this kind of work for a number of years now, I, I got to tell you, I didn't set out to be like the anti like woke warrior, <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody, very few people set out to, to do all that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's not, it's not enjoyable to, to, to go down that path, but, but, uh, Jude tells us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and to snatch some from the fire, yeah. hating even the garment stained by the, the flesh. And what I appreciate about what you're talking about, Elisa, is I've done a few podcasts now on like critical theory, sort of the woke church movement. It seems to me like what you are articulating with this, with the progressive Christian movement, this is sort of almost the parent movement of what we're seeing in terms of the woke church movement, in terms of the, uh, the, the, the critical theory movement within the church. Would you agree with that assessment? Is that, is this sort of where that all is coming from? Absolutely. I don't know what begets what, but right. Okay. Definitely the major, all of the major progressive Christian leaders are uh, espousing critical theory language and actually have for quite a while. Although what's really interesting about you bringing the convergence of those two things up is I didn't really get that until I had I had practically finished my book. And then um, a, a friend of mine who's really interested in critical theory emailed me and said, are you addressing this in your book? Because I think you need to. And I was like, you know what, I do. And so Tyndale, who's my publisher, uh, was gracious to allow me, even after my book was turned in, to add a little section on critical theory because I do think it's an on-ramp to progressive Christianity because it's it has to be the gospel. Again, if, if you're getting rid of the atonement, you're getting rid of the idea of sin and redemption, well, critical theory is a nice gospel to kind of plug in its place. It gives you a lot of actions to do, a lot of ways to think. And so, yeah, I've seen, um, as we've seen sort of the evangelical church even lately being swept up in the woke movement, the, the um, critical theory movement, uh, it's been, the seeds of it have been in the progressive church for quite a while to the mm. point where I've been really discouraged to see even people like evangelical leaders that I would consider to be pretty solid theologically actually recommending progressive Christian leaders because they've already written books on uh, uh. like say maybe racism but but those books are informed from a critical race theory standpoint uh, and and that's where I'm seeing even so much convergence so yeah like Jude there's just always we have to contend and so to answer your question just for for people how do we fight back how do we address things it's going to happen on the grassroots level. So if you're in a church and you're seeing some of these signs, go to my website and read my post, five signs your church might be heading toward progressive Christianity. If you see any of those signs in your church, you have to speak up and it's hard. It's not easy to be the one 
I, I actually am walking with two or three people right now who are going through major um, splits in their churches over this stuff. And um, it's not fun. You don't want to be the person to do that, but there's a respectful way you can do it. You might have a pastor who's thankful that you brought it to his attention because they didn't realize, oh, this person's kind of off. And, um, but, you know, speak up, call for a meeting with your pastor, share your heart, share your concerns um, if, in, you know, from a really loving place that, that you love this church. You, you, you don't want to see because progressive Christianity is a drift. You know, it's not going to just overnight, the church is going to become progressive. It's a slow drift, little bit by little bit by little bit. And it's just going to take Bible believing Christians to speak up. And um, I've even, I, I've shared this on a couple of podcasts late, lately. I met a woman who um, her church women's group was going to do like a five week study that a progressive Christian writer had done the curriculum. And it was this totally progressive um, Bible study. And so I asked her, I'm like, what did you do? And she said, oh, I joined it. <laughs> and so she joined the small group and essentially just week after week count countered a lot of the things that were being taught with scripture for her. and I asked her I'm like well what happened she goes oh everybody was thankful like they saw it <laughs> I think the group was small enough that she was able to do that but you know there is hope that's not always the outcome but um but you know speak up share your heart share your concerns you have every right to do that and um I'm just you know praying for the church right now that that We've seen that we've had to do this for all of history. Like if you go back to the first century, the Christians have had to contend for the faith. They've had to push out the false doctrine. And, you know, this is our turn. It's our turn now to do that. And, um, you know, it's like you said, you, you know, you don't set out each morning and go, what am I going to be against today? You right. don't need that person. But um, sometimes, you know, biblically, we're required to call out false teaching. And so I just want to encourage you that we've done that for 2,000 years. This is nothing new. And yeah. we've just enjoyed the luxury of living in a place where it's just not been that hard. Um, but, you know, that may be changing. Who knows? But we have to be loyal to Christ first. And Amen. so just hope that encourages somebody. Amen. Now, I think that's very encouraging. And, um, you know, one thing I, I will say, I, I respect about your attitude towards all this. Um, you, so I know the name Elisa means joy. We talked a little bit about that. My wife's name is Elisa as well, spelled with a Z. Yes. And, um, and yeah, it's great to see you approaching this with joy because yeah, it's a struggle, but it's a battle in, a war that's already been won. That's right. Jesus won the war for us 2000 years ago. And one day he's going to, the decisive victory is going to happen when Jesus returns and all of the false teachings and all of the, the um, ideological just knockdown drag out fights that we're in today. Those are going to be settled with a breath from the Lord. I mean, he's gonna, he's all the enemies are going to be placed under his feet. The last enemy is death. And we have such an incredibly joyful future ahead of us. And so we can, we can fight these battles with joy in our hearts, regardless of what happens, you know, just knowing that Jesus is Lord, he's on his throne and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Um, so, I, so anyway, all that to say, it's, I want to encourage you too, because it's, it, this has been very encouraging for me and, um, and it's, and to anyone listening too, listen, the reason why we can have joy here is because the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And I'm not going to get on my, my former preacher soapbox here, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is what Elisa referred to earlier, that earliest creed we find in scripture in first Corinthians 15, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. He appeared to many. And 
Today, he reigns over the universe. And if you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus, then you can have joy everlasting because you will know God. You'll have all your sins forgiven and you will, your eternity will be with God, enjoying eternal life with him and his people forever. So um, that's, that's, the, that's the message that we share. That's the joy that we have. Um, anything you want to add to that before we maybe take a couple well, of questions? Yeah, I was just reminded of a G.K. Chesterton quote from his book, Orthodoxy, and I won't read the whole thing, but you know, you mentioned the joy. I, I think uh, Chesterton called orthodoxy a grand whirling adventure. You know, he said it's easy to be the heretic. Her heresy is so easy and boring. Yeah. Like, it's so easy to just go with what the world says. It's easy to be a modernist. It's easy to be a snob. Um, to fall into those traps of error, um, you know, he says, he says that's just simple. It's simple to fall. But um, to have fallen into any of the fads from Gnosticism to Christian science would have would be obvious and tame. But here's what he says. He says, but to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure. And in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages, the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling, but erect. I love that quote. Love it. Are you okay taking a, a comment or question or two? Sure. Okay. We, we've got, we got, we had a, a good cohort of people watching, but um, just a couple of comments and, and really, really positive stuff here. So the proverbial life says great conversation saints. Um, oh, here's someone you might, you might know. Uh, yeah. Lindsay Mendelwalt says, uh, Mendenwalt uh, says you're killing it. Great job speaking truth. Even if sometimes it's tough. Uh, Jimmy Jose says, nice cultural analysis and exposition of progressive Christianity. And then um, Lindsay asks another question here. Let me see if I can change this so it's a little easier for us to read. There we go. The culture is such a good point. So this would be a question for you then, Elisa. How should we respond specifically when our friends start sharing things from Doyle, Hatmaker, or the likes? Besides sharing your book with them, of course. Well, um, that's a great question, Lindsay, and just something I have done in the past. And I don't do it every time. I think we have to kind of assess where the person is at. If it seems like they're not open to truth, you know, you can pray about if you need to even say anything at all. Um, but one thing I've done a couple of times is when I know somebody has a heart for truth and they're, they're true Jesus followers, but maybe they share one of these books, um, one thing you can do is on my website, I have reviews and podcasts uh, about all uh, like uh, Jen Hatmaker and Glennon Doyle, their books. I have a, actually a written review and a podcast on both of their books. One thing you could do is just maybe email your friend and say, hey, I noticed you shared this. Um, here's just another perspective to consider and then send them the book review. Uh, I've done that and, and it's been received well uh, a couple of times uh, with, you know, I had a friend who shared uh, the book White Fragility. And so I, I sent her Neil Shenby's review and said, hey, here's just another, uh, you know, things to consider because often it's people have a um, a good heart in wanting to read something. It sounds loving to them, or or this you know might sound like this sounds good, and they may not have language to articulate why maybe it's not so good. And so, just sharing a book review is a good way to go um, to start the conversation, or even just to say, hey, you know, if you ever want to talk about it, um, I'd love to get coffee, and just to to invite conversation rather than just like 
you know, making dogmatic statements, that's wrong, you shouldn't be, you know, that kind of stuff, that's just going to repel people, but inviting them into a conversation with maybe consider this book review or consider this, this perspective and see what you think might be an inviting way to do that. Yeah, that's, that's very good. And that's actually very similar advice and counsel as, uh, as what Neil Shenvey gave when he was on this podcast, actually, uh, really encouraging the one-on-one -on -one conversation face to face, even. Yeah. Which nowadays, depending on where you're at in the country, can be a, a challenging thing uh, based on what's open. As we record this, if you're listening later, we're sort of uh, nearing the end, at least here in Chicago. I, actually, here in Chicago, I don't know if we'll ever get to the end of this, but uh, the, the, the coronavirus and the lockdowns and things like that are all very much um, still a reality in certain parts of the nation. Um, but thank you for that, Elisa. And how can our listeners and viewers connect with you, find out more from you? If someone's got a follow-up question that, you know, they're listening, listening to this later and they're like, oh, I really want to ask her this, how can they reach out to you and, and uh, get in touch? Uh, well, my website, everything that I do, it can be kind of found on my website. So I've got a blog again and a podcast. Uh, and, and then again, I've written a book that's coming out uh, October 6th. So all the information you need about that can be found on my website, alisachilders.com. I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, at Alisa Childers on all of those platforms. I will be honest, I, I, I'm very slow with messages. I receive a lot of messages, and so it's very difficult for me to get through all the messages. But if you have a question, there's really likely that I've written a blog post or there's a podcast somewhere that I've recorded that will address the question that you have. And so there's a search bar on my website. You can do that. And um, But yeah, join, join the community on Facebook. Facebook, we've got a great group of people and it's just, you know, like-minded people. It's, it's great. So alisachilders.com and then at alisachilders on all the big social media platforms. Wonderful. And I know you're an honorary mama bear for mama bear apologetics as well. I, I can't recommend mama bear apologetics highly enough either. Like I said, my wife really enjoys those ladies and what they have to say and, and uh, appreciates your contributions as well, Elisa. So um, so thank you so much for taking the time and joining me today. It's It's been encouraging for me. I'm sure it's been encouraging for our listeners as well. And um, just want to encourage everybody to connect with the Think Institute by going to thethink.institute. Get all of our back catalog of podcast episodes. We've got over 150 of them now by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. You can catch us on social media at thinkinst on Twitter at the Think Institute on Facebook. And then we're on like ThinkSpot and Parler and some of those other more obscure social media for all you obscure social media users. Also, I've got something in addition to those conferences that I'm going to be doing, I've got something kind of cool that's in the works right now with um, a brother who's got a server on Discord. And I'm not going to count my chickens before they hatch yet, but it, it, it could be something pretty cool. So stay tuned to this podcast. I'm going to give you more details about that as that uh, becomes a little clearer and as that date draws near. So this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. We sure hope that you have found something helpful. And that's all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think. 